Good morning, everyone, and happy Easter to you. I'm so glad that you're here celebrating Easter with us here at Allen Creek Community Church. You know, I love that song, My Story. And you know, when I was reviewing it this week, I was preparing for these comments, I, it brought to mind just this idea that every convinced Christian, every believing follower of Jesus, that's kind of what they feel like. They feel like their story is built on the thing that we're celebrating here this weekend, which is the fundamental fact of the Christian faith, that Jesus rose from the dead. So everybody, everybody who follows Jesus believes my story is built on his story. Every Christian feels that their experience of relationship with God, and it's a layered thing. Like for example, they feel forgiven by God. That is their experiential reality. And they believe that it's found here when God literally is absorbing the moral debt of the human race. That's what's happening on the cross. Christians believe that. And that their story, their, their experience of forgiveness is built on that. This idea that they feel loved by God is built on the idea that, that we're the invaded, visited planet that the Father sent the Son. Their experience of hope is built here too because any hope that the believing Christian has for life after death is built here when a corpse was resuscitated and came back from the dead, giving us hope that there's something more. So here it is, you know, the experience of my story is built very squarely on his story. But there's a problem, and here it is. It's wonderful, Christian, that your story is built on his story, but the question is this, is his story built on history? That's a, that's a pretty big question, isn't it? And I think it's a question that matters. Another way of saying it is just simply, did this happen? And I think that that question matters. Is, is the Christian getting real spiritual power from a real event or merely some psychological comfort from a soothing myth? And I think the answer to that question matters. I think it mattered to the original purveyors of the Christian faith, and I think it matters for you, a modern uh, person investigating these things. In fact, there's a, a, a Christian writer and author, C.S. Lewis, from the last century, who, by the way, spent the first... Uh, roughly 30 years of his life as a convinced atheist. Here's what he said about whether this matters or not. He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So, uh, friend, I think the question matters. So, is it true? Now, if you ask a Christian uh, how they know that it's true, uh, why they believe, most of them will simply have an answer that goes something like, I have Jesus in my heart. But is this experience of Jesus, your truth, quote unquote, is it built on something that actually happened? You say my story is built on his story, true enough, but is his story built on history? And that's a big question, and that's the question today. And by the way, that's why we wrapped our drama of retold Jesus story again in the, in the um, uh, cloak of this lemony snicket type narrator character from the series of unfortunate events. And by the way, I was just indoctrinated to this as a, as a parent now of smaller children. Now, you may not have ever read the books or seen the movie, so let me just you know, get you quickly up to speed. If you read the books, you know that this character, the narrator character, Lemony Snicket, he has kind of appointed himself a kind of investigator. 
He is a writer, that's just why he's always interfering in the story, explaining turns of phrase and, and, and words and that sort of thing. But he's researching and he's preserving the sad story of the Baudelaire uh, orphans for his own personal reasons. And I'll just let you read the story to know what those reasons are. But he goes about tracking their movements and collecting evidence related to their story. So this morning, with that in mind, let's ask the question, what has someone played the Lemony Snicket role with Jesus' story, not with the Baudelaire orphans, but with Jesus' story. What if they investigated it thoroughly? What if they traced the events? What if they collected the evidence? What would they find out? Now, to imagine this, and and this is actually possible. Maybe you think that's not possible, but it is possible. What we simply have to do is sort of imagine a crime scene investigation only in an ancient context. And by the way, that's all that crime scene investigators do. They're forensic experts designed to put together things that happened in the past. So if we're going to try to put together this thing that happened in the past, okay, so just imagine it's Jerusalem CSI, okay? And so there's two challenges that every crime scene investigator has. Number one, they have to collect the data. I mean, their first job is to collect the evidence. They have to say, what happened? What, what can we all agree uh, is the data that's staring us in the face? That's the first thing. But the second thing is they've got to make a case. And this is basically where they say, what does the data say about what actually happened? How can we reconstruct the data into a cohesive, logical narrative and say, this happened? Okay? So there's the two things that all detectives do. And, and so let's just follow the process. Let's do that. Why don't we do that with Jesus' story? So when we're in the first phase of that, we're in the collecting evidence phase, here's one thing we have to keep in mind. <coughs> Super important. One thing we have to do is try to be as unbiased as possible when we're collecting the data. And maybe you wouldn't expect a Christian pastor to think in an unbiased sort of way, but I think if we want to know what happened, we should. And here's how you do that. You have to only count as evidence stuff that's publicly available and stuff that's universally or at least widely agreed upon. So you know what that does? That rules out as evidence for Jesus' story uh, personal experience. So personal experience matters for my story, but if we're going to try to find history, my personal experience can't count. What, what else we wouldn't want to count in there is like really controversial bits of evidence that are hotly debated. We can't count that stuff either. At the same time, a wild skepticism based in a really harsh anti-Christian bias or ideology, we got to throw that stuff out too because that's like super biased, right? So here's the deal. How do you get then objective, unbiased, as unbiased information data as possible? Well, number one, you got to bypass this guy because this guy has got skin in the game, right? Okay, so he's not part of your unbiased data collection, right? Uh, But then you also have to bypass this guy. This village atheist, the uh, skeptics are us, you know, vlogger guy. You know, some of you might, you know, visit his site quite a bit. And you, that, that has to be thrown out because that guy also has skin in the game. So here's what you have to do. You, you instead have to rely on actual historians, right? Like people who are actually immersed and deal with the ancient manuscripts. People who are actually there living and breathing in the texts of the time that we're talking about this, the uh, events surrounding the story of Jesus. So the question is this then, what assessment of his story would we get if we pulled these people? And there, there are all kinds of these people. There are, there are Christian scholars who work in the original manuscripts. There are non-Christian scholars who work in this field. And so they're believing and they're skeptical. Like, where would they agree? That would matter, wouldn't it? Like, if you could get them to agree on something, you'd say, whoa, that's 
significant stuff. All right, so here's what happened. A guy named Dr. Gary Habermas, he's a New Testament scholar, and here's what he did. He like scoured the work of all New Testament scholars from all over the field and all over the ideological spectrum. And um, so he kind of worked with the nerds, you know, who deal with this stuff. And um, here's what he found. Near universal agreement on four key facts, especially as it relates to Jesus' final days. And this is going to blow some of you out of the water. Okay, so this is like four things that he felt like, okay, this is what everybody agrees happened. So number one, Jesus died on a cross and was buried in the time of Pontius Pilate. Now that's fascinating just because there are still some people are traipsing around as saying that Jesus didn't really exist or we can't really know. The fact that Jesus died in the time of Pontius Pilate was crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate may be the most well-attested fact of ancient history. That one fact right there. Okay, so fact number two. Jesus' tomb was found empty after his crucifixion. Fact number three. Jesus' disciples believe that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Fact number four. Jesus' disciples were transformed following their alleged resurrection observances. Okay, so first thing I want to do is just underline the fact that, like, this happened. Like, this is kind of amazing if you think about it, right? Because you can kind of take this stuff to the bank. There's so much ambiguity when it comes to history. You say, well, you know, can we really know and stuff like that. You can take these four things to the bank. If we, like, videotaped human history and we had, you know, a recording of everything, if we rewound the tape, you know, we rewound the entire record, these four things would show up on the tape. That's kind of amazing when you think about it, right? But then the second thing I want to point out about these four facts is that um, none of these minimal facts requires you to believe that his story is, um, is everything that Christians believe it to be as it's put forward in Christian orthodoxy. You're not required by the facts to believe that. In other words, there are other ways to explain these four facts other than Christian orthodoxy. This is just the minimal evidence that everyone can agree to this happen. So then, so that's the data collection phase. So if we're doing the CSI thing, then the next thing we're into is kind of the whodunit part of the investigation. That is, we're making a case. We're saying, what theory explains all this evidence? What, what theory best explains the evidence? So now we're into theorizing, and here's where we should remember that there are good theories and there are bad theories. So uh, good theories uh, generally tend to be logically consistent. They uh, tend to be simple. So in other words, uh, a theory that has to multiply a bunch of causes tends to be false. So they tend to be simple. And then most importantly, a good theory is going to explain the data. So the more data a theory can account for, the better that theory is. So let me just illustrate, and since we're, you know, in detective police mode, I'll just give you a detective story. There were detectives that one time came upon a crime scene, and a woman was lying dead in her own bed, strangled. There was no sign of, here's the data points, okay? There was no sign of forced entry. There was a picture uh, of the woman, the dead woman, uh, embracing a man face down on the dresser next to the bed. There were some men's clothes that appeared to be missing from the closet. There was a man's shoe found in the house, but it matched a 25-year-old neighborhood man. That man had a violent history. So the first theory that the lead investigator proposed was that the suspect was the woman's husband or lover. 
and was inferred that that was the man that was in the picture that was face down on the dresser. So that matched uh, the pattern, then that's one of the reasons he put forward because he said most domestic violence cases are perpetrated by someone that the victim knew. So he said, yep, take it to the bank. The person who did this was a husband or a lover. But that theory, you'll notice, didn't account for the shoe or for the neighbor. Second theory was that the woman was murdered by her neighbor who must have tricked her into opening her door. That's why there was no forced entry. And it was a better theory even if it didn't conform to bias because it accounted for all the data points, not just some of them. So guess what? This, is an act, this actually happens, a real tr- story. Sure enough, in the next month, they found out the woman was single. The man in the picture was her brother, not her husband. She kept some of his clothes for his occasional visits from overseas. That explained the closet clothes. And the neighbor eventually confessed. <coughs> so... What that proves is that some explanations are better or worse, not based on whether they conform to a bias or not, but whether they collect all the data or not. Does it explain everything? If it only explains half the things, it's not as good a theory if it can explain all the things. So let's take this idea about theories and let's take it to the four key facts that we can know about Jesus. There are different theories that might explain the facts, but which one is gonna be logically consistent simple and which one is going to collect or explain the data well here's the number one uh, here's a first theory and this has been put put forward uh, probably since the late 1880s and it's called the swoon theory and it suggests it's, it explains the data by saying that the disciples were wrong about jesus dying so this would explain then the appearances it would explain the transformation of the apostles following the appearances <clears throat> it would explain the empty tomb. But here's an interesting thing, right? So imagine that they're saying to themselves that Jesus didn't actually appear raised from the dead. He merely appeared resuscitated from near death. He was crucified, and as you all know, crucifixion isn't like slitting your throat or anything. You survive a crucifixion for a number of hours. So maybe he just survived the entire ordeal and appeared to them afterwards, and they merely thought that he had risen from the dead. He had merely recovered. So as I said, that this explains three of the facts. It explains the, the appearances, the empty tomb, the transformation. But it fails to account for the overwhelming testimony, um, uh, both inside and outside the Bible, that Jesus must have died. Number one is now we know, for example, just how incredibly expert the Romans were at killing people. That was kind of their thing. Roman centurions understood death, and crucifixion was an excruciating way, a way that the Romans invented to kill people, and uh, they kind of understood the end game really, really well. We also know that the guards who were responsible for conducting the execution would have themselves been executed if they botched a crucifixion. And then there's this, and this is John's record in John chapter 19, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. You know what people used to think about that? Because John writes late, like he writes in the 90s, probably in the first century. And uh, so people used to think that was John being poetic, that was John being symbolic, and that somehow he was trying to say, talk about the importance of the blood and baptism, like the water of baptism, and they were commingled as they came out of Jesus' side. And so they just thought that that was just more of John inventing the story. But now we actually know that, that people who are injured to the point of death, in other words, people who are so physically traumatized by beating, and we know uh, the beating that preceded Jesus' crucifixion, 
that they can actually experience a collecting of the fluid around the lungs and the heart. There's a fancy term for this. It's called the pericardial effusion. And so this fluid that would gather around your lungs and your heart if you're basically beaten to the point of death would collect and if stabbed would come out as a mixture of blood and water, but only if the victim was already dead. All right, so it's really probably hard to believe that Jesus merely swooned on the cross. That's a really tough one. So then there's another explanation. Maybe the disciples lied. And this is maybe the most common sense theory of all, right? Because maybe they just lied about the resurrection. This is the oldest non-orthodox explanation of the four key facts. In fact, it was put forward by the original Jewish authorities right at the moment, in other words, right in the aftermath of finding the tomb unoccupied. We re- actually read about this, this particular theory in Matthew chapter 28, verse 12. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, the disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. So here's a problem with this explanation. The problem is that it fails to account for the transformed lives of the apostles. And here's what we know, and again, this is kind of take it to the bank, we know this is a fact. Within a few years of these events, we had literally dozens of people, apostles, traipsing around the Mediterranean, here was their message. You want to get it in a sentence? It goes like this. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. That was, the, that was their message. That was the essential core of their preaching. And they suffered incredibly to preach it. So they imprisonment, torture, and in a lot of cases, death. In other words, one of the apostles, James, was killed almost within months of beginning to say this message. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. So they suffered greatly for this message. Now, can you reasonably place their courage, their dedication, at the pain of death on the back of a lie, on the back of a conspiracy? Is that reasonable? I I don't think so. And again, not according to uh, another uh, person who's thought deeply about this, Uh, Nixon's hatchet man Chuck Colson some of you have heard about this guy right so during the Watergate conspiracy there really was a conspiracy so Chuck Colson after his conversion reflected on the resurrection and conspiracy and here's what he wrote he said I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me how because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years never once denying it everyone was beaten tortured stoned and put in prison They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So this explanation really doesn't collect all the data. It just does not account for the incredible transformation. But now you get to maybe a third uh, potential explanation. Maybe they were delusional. I mean, that's a potential way of explaining things. Some skeptics believe that the disciples, as a result of the trauma involved in losing their master, who is going to deliver them from the oppressive hand of Rome, instead he's killed by Roman authorities. Imagine the disillusionment, the deflation, the depression. And people have, in fact, hallucinated dead loved ones. That happens. In fact, it's quite frequent that it happens. And... um, 
And so maybe this is an explanation. Now let's leave aside for a second that you have to imagine a group hallucination, which is not a thing in psychology, but let's just imagine it because it does explain Jesus' crucifixion, it explains the appearances, it explains the transformed lives since they would have sincerely believed that they saw their master return from the dead, but it was just a figment of their imagination. But again, if a good theory captures all the facts, this one fails to capture one really important fact, and that is the empty tomb. And because it fails to account for that fact, it utterly fails. So just imagine how this works. So imagine the apostles are preaching about a raised Jesus, but imagine it's just a hallucination and the body's still in the tomb. So we know that the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities had a really vested interest in squashing the upstart Jesus movement. We know that, it's a fact. And so what would be the quickest way that you could stop people from saying the undergirding message of the entire Christian story, which is God raised Jesus from the dead and we are witnesses of this fact. What would be the easiest way to stop that? Find the body, exactly, thank you. Produce a body. That would be the easiest way to get that done. But it wasn't produced, and the most reasonable cause is that it wasn't there anymore. Now, how do we know it wasn't there? This is fascinating, friends, and this is one of the reasons why scholars, both believing and skeptical, believe that the tomb was empty. Because we have four independent accounts of the fact that Joseph of Arimathea, a guy that was part of the Sanhedrin, was allowed by Pontius Pilate to bury the body in his own tomb. Oh, you say, <laughs> he wasn't in the tomb, just so you know. They, they bought tombs before they died back then. So, so he buried Jesus in, a, in his own tomb. The unintended result of that little exchange, which probably happened because Pontius Pilate wanted to stick it to the Sanhedrin, who he probably felt manipulated him into crucifying Jesus. So he said, yeah, you know, I'm gonna let one of your own give him a proper burial. The guy that you consider to be the worst blasphemer ever. Let's give him a proper burial. Ha, ha, ha. Well, it backfired because what it meant was that Jesus was buried in a specific tomb that everybody knew where it was. That was the unintended consequence of Pontius Pilate saying, yeah, go ahead, take his body down. Give him a proper burial if you want. And so all of Jerusalem, okay, within weeks is hearing the disciples claiming, they touched him. They looked in his eyes. They'd spoken with him. They'd eaten with him. And what did the authorities say? They said the only thing they could say, they stole the body. Other explanations weren't available to them because of this little series of fortunate events. Because Pontius Pilate allowed Jesus to be buried in a known tomb, other explanations like, well, he wasn't put in a tomb. We threw his body in the dump which is, by the way, what they usually did with the bodies of crucified criminals. That explanation wasn't available to them. How about the explanation, you got the wrong tomb? No, 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 we, we, we buried him over here. That also wasn't available to them. Why? Because Pontius Pilate gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea for independent testimony refers to that particular man and that particular event, and now we know. He was placed in a marked tomb, and so they said the only thing they could say, the disciples stole the body. What was never in dispute, never, the tomb was empty. So, any explanation that doesn't account for an empty tomb fails. And the idea that the disciples were delusional and on a mass scale was a non-starter. Well, here's another uh, potential explanation. Maybe the disciples' observations were distorted. 
right? Like legendary is a fancy word, legendary accretion, which means legends build over time. So the theory goes like this. Maybe the whole story was wildly exaggerated as time went on. So this explains that Jesus' death and the empty tomb, the accounts of the transformation, does explain all those things, but is it really being honest with the data that we have about the appearances? See, here's what we know, that legends about uh, ancient stories do in fact grow over time. Legends can be added to and often with mythical elements that, are, that seem like really implausible. Like this even happens as recently as American history, right? Like so what's the story is, you know, about George Washington, he cannot tell a lie or... No, that, well, who's that? That's Abraham Lincoln. And then, there, no, it's something like uh, he cut down an apple tree with an ax, one fell swoop or something. Am I getting this wrong? I'm a Canadian, so I didn't get all the, all the history lessons here. But here's what I know. Here's what I know is that we've got legendary elements that can start to accrue onto real stories, right? Legendary, that happens, that happens. But here's what you need. You need time. You need time for legendary elements to be attached to historical events. Why do you need time? It's very simple. You need time because the people who were there, eyewitnesses who can either prove or disprove, need to be dead. That's why. But here's what we've got. What we've got is within 20 years of the events, we've got a guy named the Apostle Paul, and he writes this down, and he writes it down in a letter. In the letters from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, and you say, well, that's a Christian source. Uh, listen, you, you need to understand this, okay? In the context, again, of objective historical scholarship, this is written in the year 55, maybe earlier, and no one disputes that. No one, okay? And here's what he wrote. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to the Cephas, that's an Aramaic name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. By the way, fallen asleep is a Christian euphemism for death. After the resurrection, they no longer thought that anybody who died in faith died. They just fell asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Now listen, if he's adding to the Jesus myth something entirely new he's going about it all wrong like the mariners they can't even rebuild right they're they're rebuilding wrong they're winning every game you don't rebuild okay so in the same way if you're adding mythical elements he's going about it all wrong why because he's writing about it during the lifetime of still living eyewitnesses who can either refute or deny and even with that Within 20 years, you say that's a long time, not long enough, not nearly long enough. He's daring people to cross-reference his story. He's daring them, 500, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? He's saying, you can check this out. So, it's not so easy to write off our four minimal facts, everybody. It's not easy. They, there they are, and, and they all have to be accounted for. So, in light of all that, friends, maybe you and me, CSI people, Lemony Snickets today, would be open to another theory. And it would be the theory that the disciples accurately reported a resurrection. The theory that now you can plainly see, it captures all the data. 
It, it explains every data point that we have about the story. And all the evidence, all four facts that everybody agrees to are accounted for in this explanation, which is essentially fundamental Christianity. And that suggests to me this happened. At the very least, it says to believe that this happened is not irrational, but that it is in fact rational, it's consistent with the best evidence that we have. It is reasonable to believe that Christianity's foundational event is true. So you say, what's the problem? There is a problem with this theory. Do you want to know what it is? There's one problem with this theory. And the problem is this, is that you have to believe that supernatural things can happen. That's the problem. You have to believe that a God could intervene in history. You have to believe that in order to make this explanation make final sense. And is that so hard to believe? (laughs) Well, maybe for some of you it is. I mean, you say, yeah, Rick, that is. That is so hard to believe. That's why I will take any explanation. I will take a deficient explanation over this explanation rather than to believe that supernatural things occur. Maybe we could help you with that. Like, I mean, seriously, like if you're really wrestling with this and, and maybe it would, it would help you to ask more questions about the interplay of science and faith and we could help you do that and maybe, maybe really grapple with not just the evidence for Jesus' resurrection but the evidence for a supernatural creation and all that kind of stuff. And we could talk about it in investigations. That's why we talked about it earlier. I mean, if you wanted to, you could keep your, your spiritual journey going, not just, you know, be a one-time kind of Easter thing, but ask more questions. Don't you owe it to yourself to be intellectually honest? To say, you know, I got to look into this thing. You know, I really, I, you know, I didn't know that the people would agree to those four facts. That's kind of amazing. Maybe you didn't know that. Have you really been intellectually honest in your spiritual journey? Because if it's true, as C.S. Lewis said, it's of utmost importance. I mean, there's nothing that matters more. And then what would happen? Then what? Let's say you grappled with the facts and you realize this is plausible. Then what? Then, friends, you could believe that Jesus so you could believe one day in Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference between, between believing that something versus believing in something, right? You could believe that Jesus actually said and did the things that he said and did so that you could believe in Jesus, which is to say, entirely entrust your life spiritually to him in faith. What's the difference between believing that versus believing in 18 inches? That's the difference. And some of you will never believe in until you can believe that. And that's how the process has to go for you, and maybe we could help you with that. And just to illustrate the difference, let me just, again, let's go back to the police files on this. This actually happened again. There was a guy who was pulled over. He was recently released from prison. He was on parole, and he was carrying a forty-five caliber gun. He was a violent criminal who had been released on parole. He had been pulled over because he was driving intoxicated. When the policeman comes up to the door, he smells alcohol. He gets the man to come out, and he's about to pat him down. The criminal says to himself, there's no way I'm going back to prison. And in that moment, he makes the terrible decision to say, I am ready to even kill this police officer so I don't have to go to prison. So he pulls out his 45 caliber gun and points it directly in the chest of the police officer and he's got the drop on him. The police officer tells the story later. He says, there was no way I was gonna be able to pull my weapon out in time to defend myself. In that moment, he knew that the bulletproof vest that he was wearing would stop a 45 caliber round. He believed that, said right here in the manual, told him in class after class, this vest 
will stop a 45 caliber gun. He believed that it would. But in that moment, he made a decision to believe in that vest because he said, I will still apprehend this criminal. I will take a bullet in the chest and I will still go for my weapon. And so he did. He went for his weapon. He took a round in the chest. The vest stopped the bullet. He said it was like being kicked by a very, very large donkey. (laughs) And getting his own weapon was able to apprehend the criminal. Friend, that's the difference between believing that versus believing in. And some of you have to go through that process and we are here for you. But there's a lot of people in this room who already believe in. You already believe in. I'm still worried about you, friend. And I'm gonna tell you why. Because there are a lot of Christians who when asked, well, why do you believe in Jesus? It's all personal experience for you. And when hard times come, or maybe you go to college, where all we're dealing with is the objective world of verifiable facts, and maybe you're being pressed, and it maybe it's really inconvenient if it's true. And so maybe you get pressed by a, a, a season of suffering in your life. And suddenly this Jesus that you believed in can be easily cast aside because really you find it hard to believe that. And maybe you, believer, need to go at the same thing exactly differently. This Jesus that you believe in, you need to believe that so that you can marry your heart and your mind together. Because it's not so easy to cast aside a Jesus in a time of suffering or trial or questioning if you've got good reasons to believe that. And so I put this forward in front of you, friend. You and I together, we need to really believe that Jesus rose so that you can bind your heart and your mind together so that on the day of trial or suffering, your faith will stand because your story is built on his story, which is built on history. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes and enlighten us to truth. And we are ready to stand with Jesus, who himself said, the truth will set us free. Make it so for all these people, my friends, in this room. Amen. Now we're going to celebrate this, friends, how God makes glorious things out of ruins, the ruins of our lives, the ruins of a crucified master. God makes glorious things. So let's join our our voices together and sing about it this Easter. Church, let's seal this moment, this Easter moment with prayer. God, as you have acted in history now, may we be among those resurrection people who demonstrate new life to the world. That our experience of love and forgiveness and hope is a gift. And it's a gift that we give to the world and it is not a fantasy because it is built in your direct and real intervention in history and in our lives. And we thank you for making this gift available to us. May we be excellent stewards of it. For Jesus' sake, the risen one. Amen. Well, men and women, boys and girls, I'm so glad that you're here and celebrating Easter with us today. I don't know what you have for the remainder of the day. I hope you enjoy your families, uh, get-togethers and gatherings of all kinds. But I just want to invite you back here again next week where we're going to talk about one of the foundational texts of Christianity the letter of Paul to the Romans. And maybe there's a friend that you have in your world who would be helped and served by understanding Christianity. It's core fundamental tenets and principles kind of straight out of the horse's mouth, all right? So we're gonna do that next week. Invite a friend, we'd love to have him. And for today, happy Easter.
We'll see you all next week.